Hello, this is Ruslan Malinovsky. Hello, this is Roman Yeremchuk. Hello, I'm Sergey Rebro. And you're listening to Ukraine Post Football. podcast sobre el fútbol ucraniano and not you are not confused to your audience we have not been invaded by spanish speakers we are still english podcast about ukrainian football my name is ray i'm currently in argentina and i came here to see what this all fuss is about the team won the world cup and how is it actually done how can we project this passion into our love of ukrainian football I'm joined by my co-hosts, as always. Andrew Todos is one of them. And also our founder of the board, and Adam, how are you? Muy bien, right, muy bien. Oh, sorry, mate. Very good. And alongside us regular co-hosts, we welcome a very special guest on today's show. Say hello to writer, journalist, podcaster, and European football expert andy brassel welcome to the show how are you doing uh, pretty good andrew and thanks for the run-up very appreciative of the intro very much enjoyed that um yeah everything's good um all the better for seeing uh Shakhtar get through to the last 16 of the europa league because it just continues to be an extraordinary story um you know i've, I've watched them in, in europe for many many years like probably about a decade and a half, like maybe more, um, ever more closely, um, as, as the story's just become like, ever more extraordinary and inspiring. And it was, it was just a, another one of those nights. <laughs> and I think you know exactly what I mean. Absolutely. I think before we go into that, this weekend marked one year since the full-scale invasion of Ukraine, uh, the 24th of February, Obviously, everyone's known it the world over. Everyone has been affected by it, um, be it in small ways or big ways. And one thing, obviously, that we've seen over the past year is the reaction of the global footballing community. And seeing as this weekend was one year on or nine years on from when everything truly began in Crimea and in east of Ukraine when Russia first invaded, we saw the Premier League in particular uh, have some quite nice gestures of remembrance and solitude for uh, one year on from the war. We saw all captains wearing the Ukraine captain's armband, and there were loads of signages saying that football stands together, be it at the Carabao Cup final between United and Newcastle, and it was just across the board. I think the main story from all of it was obviously Alexander Zinchenko got the captain's armband for Arsenal. He became, I think, only the second Ukrainian to ever captain Arsenal after Oleg Luzhny back in the early 2000s. And yeah, it was. A, I think it was an emotional game. He, the team won 1-0 and Arteta was actually quite, quite candid about why they let him do it. They said, hey, 
We want to pay tribute to Alex, to his family, to his friends and to his people of Ukraine for the sort of brave fight that they've put in over the past year uh, against Russian aggression. So that was very welcome. The, the general consensus from the Premier League and how they responded to this one year anniversary was very good. Andy, what's been your reaction in general to seeing sort of the global footballing community gather round, rally round Ukraine, Ukrainian players, Ukrainian clubs? I'd say it's been quite unprecedented. What about you? I think it has in, in a way, certainly. Um, I, I think the fact that the football community has wanted to keep Ukraine front and centre is, is, is a great thing. I think um, part of that is due to the Ukrainian flagships we have in European football. And I think you look on um, at a club level, obviously look at Shakhtar and everything they've been able to do. I think you go to the beginning of this this season and uh, Dinamo Kiev winning at um, Fenerbahce and the Champions League qualifiers is absolutely huge. You know, nothing keeps you in the headlines like success. It's, it's brutal, but it's true. Um, but having said that, I think the way that um, particularly Germany and, and, and Spain have um, been keen to platform Ukraine at all times has is, is, is been brilliant. Um, and also, also on an individual level, on an individual level, if we're talking about um, uh, flagships, I, I think you have to say uh, Ruslan Malinowski, who's always so eloquent, although obviously um, with the handshake with Golovin after the, the the game against Monaco, you know, any, any anyone can can stumble into a, a difficult area, but on on the, on the whole, he's, he's someone who's uh, I think uh, very uh, eloquent, um, very clear, very forthright. And I, I think that's fantastic. On the other hand, I, I do think we have to mention in terms of um, the way the European football community in particular has is, is, is reacted to Ukraine. Um, speaking to some people at Shakhtar, you know, I, I, I don't think they make any secret of it. The fact that they feel in terms of their players in the transfer market, some clubs are taking advantage. And I think we know who those, those clubs are. So much as it's nice to represent the Ukraine and come out and say supportive words, actions speak louder than words. And, um, you know, some of these clubs, they're just businesses. And, you know, if they can take a advantage of a situation, I think sometimes all, all good words go out the window. So... I know that's a, a sense of frustration um, for, for people at Shakhtar. Obviously, most of that frustration is really focused on FIFA and the, the way they've not really dealt with what is an extraordinary situation, but, but the way they hadn't really considered the club in that and how they might continue to run and really what might be left of Ukrainian football at, at, at the end of this war. Because really, um, Shakhtar have incurred huge losses and they're the club that I know best, of course. But what about all the other clubs? You know, there's, there's got to be a Ukrainian Premier League left at, at the end of this. And, you know, Shakhtar are funded by someone extremely rich who has been um, OK about taking big losses and it's been very charitable and humanitarian efforts as well. Not every club has a Rina Akhmatov. I think you have to bear that in mind. I think FIFA and UEFA have to bear that in mind as well. Yeah, completely agree. Honestly, I think time will tell whether FIFA, 
FIFA more so than UEFA uh, come out of this, you know, uh, in some sort of shining light, because for now, they've not been of any real help. And as you mentioned with, the, with Schachter, their current lawsuits going to uh, the Swiss federal court and then the European Commission, all that kind of stuff. And sadly, I feel that just with the power that FIFA has and the money that it has compared to you know, a, a, a David versus Goliath situation here of one club fighting against them. Yeah. Um, it's going to be relatively difficult in that respect. Now, we're moving on to Shakhtar and obviously the story of the past week, two weeks, them making it through to the round of 16 in rather remarkable, um, lucky, shocking fashion. Uh, I was watching the game, didn't go to it in France. I think me and you both had logistic issues and just getting to Ren from the UK, which is no hilarious joke. in itself. <laughs> um, I was looking at <laughs> options of getting the ferry over and it just looked like an extortion amount of money to actually make it like a few hundred kilometres away uh, across the channel. But hey-ho, we didn't go, but we both watched it respectively. You were working on the night and I was watching from a pub after... Um, the Ukraine commemoration concert in Trafalgar Square. And right. it honestly was a crazy, a crazy end to the game. Like, it, it, you know, the only thing I can put it, obviously you don't have to believe in God or whatever, but like a divine intervention. When the own goal went in, just from absolutely nothing, from absolutely nothing. Yeah, and then somehow Shakhtar pull it out of the bag in the penalty shootout, despite losing a 3-1 lead initially and then still pulling it out of the bag in sudden death and fortunately my uh, bet to ruin the penalty shootout who I thought Konopla might not might not rain rain it out he actually did score and what a story for brand new signing Kevin Kelsey 18 years old debut in European competition first match in Europe since moving mm, from yeah. South America and he put in quite a composed penalty and and won the game for them. And Feyenoord uh, is next. J just in general, what what did you make of Shakhtar and their performance over the two legs? Because the first leg, I would say they were a lot more comfortable. Uh, Chris Give looked quite competent as a Mudrik replacement, per se, um, in that first leg, getting the goal, uh, assisting, helping out with the penalty. And then yeah. he didn't play in the second leg. So Palov, who replaced him, not really on that level. And after the goal that got disallowed for, um, well, by VAR for a handball by Traore, it sort of started going downhill. And you were just looking at the game thinking, this is another one of those where an Eastern European side that's not played during the winter break, they might not be able to last here. And you could feel that, especially when uh, Doku ran through for the second goal and Matvienko... Just, I think he just blown out his ass. Basically, he just couldn't do anything yeah. more. <laughs> yeah, I, I think so. And you know what, Andrew? I think it's easy to overlook the fact that you know, European football changes very quickly, and that's particularly um, the case with everything that's happened to Ukrainian sides in in, in this last twelve months. Um, but the fact is, uh, I think we, we would look at this tie in like previous times and think um, Ren versus Shakhtar. Shakhtar are the favourites. They've got the European experience, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. 
But, you know, rent, who, um, for those who are unaware, are owned by Salma Hayek's father-in-law, are, are properly loaded. And since they have started to um, do well domestically and um, in European competition in the last three years or so, um, the owners of the club have, have, have not been shy in, in, in backing the club. And I think if you go down player for player, you can't look at the names of, of, of the teams. Like Shakhtar have all this European heritage, then somewhat less so. But their squad is worth an absolute fortune. You know, they're, they're not considered a giant of the French game like um, Marseille or like PSG or, or, or whatever. But you know, bear in mind, I spent 26 mil on Jeremy Doherty as a teenager, which is extraordinary. You know, they sold Rafinha to create space for him. And then they spent what they'd received for Rafinha and half as much again on, on buying Doku. And then you look at the purchases of Kalimuendo, of Guiri. These are all expensive players um, with probably pretty big futures in, in, in many cases. So I think you look at that, you look at the fact that Bruno Genesio went out there for this second leg and they got that bit of encouragement from the Turco Kambi goal that they scored in, in Warsaw. And Genesio is like, right, let's go for it. I mean, you could argue that it was almost a 4-2-4 that they went at Shakhtar with. And that was always going to be really, really difficult to, to cope with. You know, they had um, good changes off the bench, had quality off the bench as well. We saw uh, Salah come on and score. They were able to throw on Douay, uh, Melling, good players, you know. And I think as, as well as the habitual gap and, you know, getting up to competitive level for a Ukrainian team after an extended winter break. I think you have to bear in mind that, you know, Ren are going um, in a pretty ambitious direction. And the, the win in the first leg was already an excellent achievement. I thought um, Shakhtar really showed again that the, the skill that they've shown really in this European campaign is to ride out difficult moments um, against good opponents. You know, they've done it again in, in the first game against Leipzig. They did it against Real Madrid. Um, I think it's, they did it in the first game against Celtic, you know, when they, when they were hammered, really, for the first 20 minutes in, in, in that game. So um, I think we saw more of that resolve all over again. And what I think is quite remarkable about this team is you see them growing in every game. So we talked about Konoklia before, who I thought had a really good game. And the two bits that really appealed to me the most is him making a really cynical foul on, I think it was Doku in, in the centre circle when Ren were on one break. And then after he scored his penalty, and all of their players were giving the crowd a bit of shit after they, they, they scored in the penalty shootout. But Konoplia just almost sparked a, a brawl in the middle of the shootout, didn't he? Yeah, that was like, crazy. I've never seen that. One. Yeah, no, nor have I, nor have I. Unbelievable, really. Um, yeah, apparently there was something to do with some someone in the crowd or something was maybe giving them a bit of shit, but I, no one sort of looked into it anymore. And obviously, now that the tie's over, I think that's um, forgotten for the for the best of parts. As we mentioned, relatively lucky in the grand scheme of things. Sadly, the likes of Konoplya, uh, Valeri Bondar, and Mihaila Trenka are all suspended for the first leg against Feyenoord, who Shakhtar have drawn in the next round. So it will be interesting to see what Jovicevic can do with 
obviously the limited squad you have in European ties to mm. to obtain that because he's got a few injuries in there as well that aren't going away. Chris Give, we don't know if he's going to be back in a few weeks' time. Shred's just returning from injury as well. So it's it's going to be tough. Mm. Uh, before we move on to previewing, well, having a bit more insight on Feyenoord, who do you think are the standout players in that Shakhtar squad that have really shown themselves to possibly be on the verge of that next move in the summer? Obviously, I think I'll probably highlight Matt Vienko. We've already been hearing him being linked with Brighton, yeah. etc., didn't cover himself in glory in that second goal, but I mean, 105th minute, given the context of the situation, blah, blah, blah. I think the scouts will, <laughs> will know a bit better about his consistencies um, in terms of continuing <laughs> yeah. their pursuit of that. Uh, but the star of the show, of course, Anatoly Truman. And just this week, his agency has been giving some PR yeah. to Demarzio, saying, hey, our, our players want, want to move. Um, come and get us. And they're quoting something like 12, 15 million. Shakhtar giving them away for that cheap. Good luck, in my opinion. What, what do you say? Exactly. And you know what? I think um, the Mudrik move has sort of set a yardstick. Really. We talked about the issues that... Um, Shakhtar have had with FIFA, and I think you're looking at, especially at um, Tete, Mana Solomon. It always meant that they had to be intransigent for Mudrik and, and, and get maximum value. And they'll do that all over again because, you know, Akhmatov is committed enough to, to dig in. He allows his club to have that bargaining position. And the idea that you're going to pick off players from Shakhtar for buttons, it's, it's just fantasy. It's just nonsense. If they're in contractual control of those players they ain't giving them away I mean it's, it's, it's that simple and I think with Trubin it's, it's, it's an interesting point that you make because we already saw with um, Midrick and yes he's a different player and it's a different market for him etc 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 but I think if you look at like the back end of last summer um, Midrick is looking at going to Brentford or to buy Leverkusen for somewhere around the 25 million mark and then he ends up going to Chelsea four or five months later for four time track. So basically, what does that tell you? That tells you that if you go out and perform well in Europe, it's undeniable. And especially if you get that Premier League interest, you know, these, these Premier League clubs can't turn around and go, oh, actually, we don't have the money. Um, you know, there, there, there's no, like, if, if, if it's a certain price, it's a certain price. And, and Shakhtar have that toughness in negotiation, you know, not just now because out of necessity, but also because they've got years and years of experience of selling players to the absolute elite of Europe. So, I mean, a, a lot of clubs are already looking at Trubin. I, I think that is the kind of match that, again, underlines how, how cool he is un, under pressure as well. But, you know, you, you asked about uh, players elsewhere. I've, I've been massively impressed with Bondar throughout the... Um, throughout the, the Champions League campaign as well. Um, Bondarenko's been, been, been terrific. Um, he's, he's, he's been great. And, you know, it, it was funny. I, I, was, I was in Turkey when Shakhtar had their, their training camp and speaking to uh, Dario Serna about that. And it, he, was, he was saying that, don't worry about Mudrik. We've got another four or five Mudriks up our sleeve. And I, 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 okay, maybe he was like talking for effect <laughs> a, a, a little bit. I don't think he meant actual Mudricks, exactly that player in exactly that position. But I think his point was the academy, which 
they've only grown and they knew from the moment they left the Nets that, that they were going to have to really rely on that a bit more going forward into the future. This isn't like something new. This is like the big end of 10 years of planning to produce these sort of players that maybe wasn't their focus before. So really this is, you know, they've sowed the seeds for this over, over, over a number of years and, you know, now they're going to be able to, 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 to make the most of it. I guess the question is, if they keep going in Europe, how hard does it become to hold on to those players? Because we know those big offers are, are, are going to come. Absolutely. And I mean, if you take into context the current league scenario where Shakhtar are currently second, they're still in Europe whilst Dnipro 1 exited in terrible fashion <laughs> uh, against AK mm, Larnaca. Yeah. And you think possibly if Shakhtar don't win the league this year, which is not you know unfeasible seeing as they're five points behind, they are going to have this European distraction. They're going to have to be travelling in and out of, out of the mm. country all the time. It's possible that, yeah, they might have to go to the, what's it called, third or second qualifying round of the Champions League. And going from there to the actual group stages is always difficult. And I mean, certainly if they don't qualify for the group stages, it's going to be even more tough to hold on to those players. But I feel that chapter now with the, I guess you could say maybe ego boost that the Mudrick deal has given them will hopefully, well, they should make some money on these remaining Ukrainian talents that they have and the ones that they're currently still cultivating, maybe in the under-19s and elsewhere. I'm sure that they have got replacements going forward. And if Kelsey's first performance is anything to go by, look quite lively, looked exciting. They've still got a bit of mm. uh, talent in their scouting, being able to prize away maybe not the, the greats uh, of Brazilian football, such as Tete and other top talents, which they have to bring in for yeah. big fees, but they might be able to get a few of these uncut gems and form them into something that they can then sell on for, for big money. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, God willing, the war comes to an end sooner rather than later and Shakhtar and Ukrainian football can move on from that. But in the meantime, something that shocked me from being around Shakhtar is, is, is the fact that you know, they are still a name and, and, and players still want to, want to come. Now, obviously, many of those are going to be within Ukraine, and we've seen that with the recruitment of the coach, Yovicevic, uh, as, as, as well. But on the other hand, I, I mean, I remember like before the Celtic game, I spoke to Lucas Taylor, and I, I said, well, it's one thing players electing to stay at Shakhtar, and say, for example, Lessina Traore, if it was a great um, debt to the club because they really stuck with him when he was injured and all that sort of stuff. But the thing that struck me about Lucas Taylor is he said, well, I said, well, why, why did you come? I mean, there's one thing staying when, when war breaks out, but after war's broken out, why did you come? And he went Champions League. It's, 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 quite, it's quite convincing as, as an argument, but it, it, it seems simple. But you know what? It's, it's still a massive deal to, 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 to players. So what you were saying about, you know, can they, do they end up doing like, having to do like a potential three qualifying rounds or, or, or whatever going into next season? It's why the remainder of when it restarts for the Ukrainian Premier League campaign is, is so important. Because if they can finish first again, get themselves directly into the Champions League, they can plan with some sort of certainty, they can scout with certainty. All those things are hugely important. Of course, Dimitro will be thinking the, 
the, the, the same thing. You know, it would be an extraordinary amount of money to be able to plot into your budget in this sort of situation. Absolutely. And I feel now the main focus, we can look into Feyenoord. Of course, that's who Shakhtar have got in the next round. What can we expect? Because in their group, they were one of the group winners, obviously, in their Europa League group. But they were in that crazy group where everyone finished on eight points. So <laughs> are they going to yeah. be, are they going to be, a, are they going to be a real challenge? How, how do you see this one going, really? I, I think this is really interesting because the, the thing that's amazing to me, if you go to the start of the season, uh, final would lose some players who were absolutely key for them last season. Um, you know, they lost uh, Frederick Arsnes to Benfica, who, my goodness, he, he will be one of Benfica's big sales in the future. He's, he's a terrific player, uh, the Norwegian midfielder. Um, you know, you look at Ciro Dessas moving on as, as as well. But then again, others have stepped up this season. Uh, I think Hulot Okankurju, um, who's, who's been terrific in midfield, has scored goals from midfield, nice and aggressive, helps to set the tone of what they're trying to do. And the goals are really spread around the team. Um, you know, you look at uh, Javaro Dear Olsen has, has, has come from Hertha and, and chipped in a few as well. So um, I, th- I think when you look at them in the Eredivisie this season, you look at the fact that they've really built on getting to the Conference League um, final last season, and they should have won that, really. Um, when I was Mourinho doing winning finals rather than playing finals, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, they had a, they had a lot of that game and, well, they had their chances. Roma were hanging on pretty grimly for, for a lot of that. That's, that's easy to forget. The way that they've got themselves into a league-winning position, and I realise Ajax have had their difficulties this season, but they've still got better players than everyone else. They've still got tons of money. Um, you look at PSV under Ruud van Nistelrooy, have not spent an unsig- insignificant amount of cash themselves. Again, they've lost a few players, but there's, there's still lots of quality there. So for final to be consistently winning, um, leading that league as as, as well, I, I think it's really really impressive. And um, I caught the the classic against Ajax recently, where Ajax were still under Alfred Schroeder, super lucky to get a draw in that, in playing a, a good last half hour where final didn't really make the the, the most of their chances. So look, final are competitive, but I think if you're Shakhtar, you've got to say. Okay, we um, we avoided Arsenal for, for for one. You know, there's there's some there's some better teams that that they avoided in that draw. And you know, I think you look at the teams that they've been through in the European campaign so far. Um, you know, Ren are better than Feyenoord. Um, Real Madrid obviously speaks for itself. Leipzig they managed to win out there in Germany. I think there's plenty of reasons to be optimistic for Shakhtar. Yeah, fantastic. And I mean, I guess closing this all off, you followed Shakhtar for a fair bit. As you mentioned, you were you went to Turkey recently to, to see them at their training camp. What's mm. been your general, I mean, mm. I don't know, summary of, of what you've seen so far from them, given the circumstances over the past year, given everything that they're still achieving? It's, it's I don't know, it, in my opinion, it's one of the unique footballing stories. I, I agree. It, I, I couldn't agree more with you, Andrew. It defies all logic and reason, really. Um, and I think the last year, particularly, um, not just because of the, the, the awfulness that Ukraine has gone through over the last 
12 months, but what it's done to them in terms of um, further worsening difficult playing conditions, in terms of um, stripping the squad of a, a lot of talent. Um, but, you know, what, what they do have, above and beyond a, a lot of clubs, the stability they have upstairs, um, led by Akhmatov, but you look at Sergei Falcon, Dario Serna, and all the staff around them, you know, they've all been there for like 15, 20 years. And that makes an enormous difference, I think, um, you know, to provide a level of certainty that is, is, is something you can really cling to in an age where there isn't really any. You know, I, I mean, we're, we're, we're sitting here talking about, about, about the resumption of the, the Ukrainian Premier League. I mean, goodness knows what's going to happen with that at the moment. And of course, it's, it's not the priority. The priority is that this war ends as soon as possible, that um, Russia get the hell out and you know, Ukraine as, as a country and a people can start to rebuild, you know. But having said that, um, Shakhtar have been a, a huge flagship in terms of keeping what's happening in Ukraine in, in people's minds, in showing just a remarkable level of, of sporting and human result. The thing that always strikes struck me the most, if you go back to that Champions League group stage, the nearly beaten Real Madrid, because not only were Real Madrid the holders, but of course, you'll remember there was like heavy bombing um, on, on Kiev and other, other cities um, in, in the, the day, day and a half before that game. And so you get like a group of young guys who are supposed to be preparing for one of the one of the matches of their their young lives, and really they're ringing home, finding out whether relatives are okay, scrolling the news. It's a situation that ninety nine percent of footballers, thankfully, are never going to have to go through. And these bunch of young guys who are trying to make their way in the game are dealing with something on a whole nother level. Having said that, I, I, I don't know, Shakhtar have had better sides than this player for player. I think that's pretty clear um, from, from circumstance and through everything else. I don't think they've ever had a braver team. And I don't think European football has had many braver teams than this. You know, a bunch of young guys who go out there, stick together and can still go so they can get on the pitch in the first place, but then go toe-to-toe -to -toe with some of the best teams in Europe. I mean, it's extraordinary. They're an example for anyone. And I think in years gone, uh, in years to come, when we'll hopefully be in times of peace, uh, people will look back at this Shakhtar side, this particular Shakhtar side, very, very fondly. No matter what these guys go on to achieve during the game. And already for me, they're comparable with... When you take the situation, they're comparable with like any of the exciting Shakhtar sides that you can think of in, in, in the past under Luchescu. Because just the sheer balls, the guts that these guys show is, is just totally uncommon. Thanks a lot, Andy, for coming along, telling us a fair bit about Shakhtar getting involved. It's been, it's been brilliant. Thanks for that. And hopefully maybe have you on in the future at some point if Shakhtar Thanks, make it even further into a tournament. Um, obviously, before we go, where can people find you? And what 
can you put sort of point our listeners to listen to, maybe from the Football Ramble uh, family at the moment? You can always find all my work on at Andy Brassel on Twitter, at Andy Brassel 11 on Instagram. Um, uh, you, you'll find my work in The Guardian. Um, I'm on TalkSport every Sunday night where Ukrainian football um, gets its mentions for sure, um, as, as, as well as the European game. And of course, like there'll be more and more mentions the further Shakhtar I'll go in this season's competition. So, um, yeah, let's... Um, Let's get chatting again on the eve of the final, I say. Absolutely brilliant to have Andy on there. And and obviously sticking to the topic of Shakhtar for one final moment is that the UPL is back this week. It's been a while, um, but Menai hosts Shakhtar in Lviv on Tuesday. It's not the opening game. We're going to be talking about that in a bit, but we're seeing a fo- we're seeing a fight between two teams that love a bit of a scrap um, if we're talking about um, Turkish hotels and Russian teams or Russian people in, in general. What's the general take on this one? Are we looking forward to seeing a, a bit of return of the domestic game after a long, long break? For me, completely, completely. What well, great two teams to have. Not quite kicking things off this week, but, you know, two teams that wear the Ukrainian flag proud on their shirts. And it's great to see clubs like this having a little bit of spotlight put on them uh, before the main action gets underway next weekend. Ray, you got the same sentiments? I mean, it's been a while since it happened already and it's kind of um, dissected by now. I think we should get over to the football bit. Of course, it's very tempting not to call in Danilo Sikan and um, who was that? Nemchaninov, Kolesnik from Minai, just to imagine them on the pitch. Um, However, I don't think that any of those incidents, albeit triumphant, um, helped uh, Minai consider focusing on the trainings uh, that much and on some evolution in terms of their playing style under I might I remind you Volodymyr Sharan who is um, has been a while uh, who's been around the block for a while in the league and um, in terms of the upcoming match it's good to see UPL back <laughs> it's good to see the uh, headline um, headlines uh, which uh, help this match get some extra audience I hope but the scoreboard will show the result, which we all probably can guess. I mean, Shakhtar is on top of their game, even though Daniel Sikan didn't score that penalty. But um, he'll get there, I'm, I, I'm sure. Shakhtar have certainly put smiles on our face over over the last week. SC, the Nipro one. Um, I've got the honourable mention of getting the efficient points that have guaranteed the top 15 finish for Ukraine this year. However, they've been rather sort of unanimously criticised for their performance over the last two weeks. Andrew, do you think that was fair, the criticism that's been thrown at the performance? Well, me and you have spoken 
a bit about it recently, Adam. And I think that you said it was blaringly obvious that Adam Dovbik not playing, especially in the second leg, um, impacted the new Pro 1 a fair bit. And I think it's still unclear whether he's going to be back fit or whatever, but I've seen a few photos of him in training, so I feel that he will probably be back relatively soon um, for the UPL running. Uh, the first game where they lost 1-0, that was, I don't know, it just looked very uninspiring in general. Um, not too many chances created, quite a lot of possession trying to pass around the box, but once they actually got in there, nothing to really go by. And then that second leg, as you mentioned, Hutsulak was playing up front. There was a few chances where, where he had this, where he had a header and a few other things. And you're thinking if Dovvit was there, he might have put that away. And then, yeah, we could have gone to penalties or whatever and, and seen how that went. But it, you just look at the team and you're like, damn, if these guys win the, the UPL, it's going to be tough watching them, you know, in the Champions League, like regardless of the 40 million that that might bring in for them, like they're probably going to lose Dovbit. They might lose Pichelionok, who knows? And then they're going to bring in some of these other Brazilians that they've been bringing in over the past few months, um, Costa Rica International and, and a few others. And it's obviously, I understand the current situation that Ukrainian football finds itself in. It's obviously very difficult to attract some of the great and good that you might have been in, in the past, even the kind of players that you would seeing maybe Metalist bringing in last last year, like Peixoto looked quite good and and the likes. But here it just seems, I don't know, it, it, it doesn't bring a lot of hope going forward. And um, me and Ray were talking as well um, over the past week or so when Viktor Vatsko controversially on his sort of YouTube channel mentioned that it's best for Dnipro 1 to literally just throw Europe away this season and focus fully on the league. And it looks like, maybe not purposely, maybe just through lack of quality and AEK Larnaca being the bogey team that they are for Ukrainian sides this season, um, looks like they have got that focus on the UPL now. And at least for the next few weeks, they've got the edge on Shakhtar, who are going to have to be travelling in and out of Ukraine in between their UPL matches. I think we should just add in there that uh, SC Dnipro won't do travel in and out of Ukraine as well for their matches, given the fact they're training outside the country each week. But I, in general, you know, when you put the larger sort of lens on, on, on the whole situation, with them getting out of the group, and you look at the nations around that 15th spot, having two teams get into the knockout stage this spring has uh, given Ukraine a huge head start. Now, I know there'll be people listening to this that will talk about the golden era, but we're not in the golden era now, we're in the war era. And it's, yeah, all credit, all credit to both, both sides for getting out of their groups and their respective competitions, especially when you consider sort of just over 12 months ago in the autumn of 21 and the performances of the Ukrainian teams that that time to what they've done this time has been 
personally, I know I get slated for being overly positive, but I give them a lot of credit for it. And yeah, I did say, and I'll put it out there publicly, that I thought the Nebr SC, the Nebro one, were a dog away from going for it to the next round. A team that has had more success, though, Rook Levin. I mean, well done. Who would have thought, thought it just two, three years ago, Rook Levin would be into spring European football taking on the mighty AC Milan? We are talking about the youth league, but I mean, are they going to be, right, the next big team to come through in Ukrainian football? Are you, do you see a pathway where these kids actually come through to the senior team or do you think they're going to jump off to Europe before it gets to that stage? The Ruklaviv in in the youth league, I mean, the time which you referred to, Adam, to, start, to begin with, it did not have the youth league. And now we have one and we have our team there, which is surprisingly Ruklaviv, which is uh, powered by one of the businessman in Lviv region who was uh, claiming his authority in TV pool this season, uh, in TV pool discussion, in the other ambitions throughout the league. But all credit to him for bringing up the kids in the academy. I mean, they sold Sitch not long ago, right? They uh, sold this defender in uh, Belgium. And there are plenty more to come. And also they announced, uh, I mean, the one year, the year or two ago, they announced that they are part of City Group now, the Ruch Lviv. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure if that's true, but I mean, I would rather have Hust City from Druha Liga in uh, City Group. But anyway, um, it's great. And I will be watching that game. <laughs> but uh, Ruch Lviv is definitely a good prospect. Definitely so. Andrew, I you surprised to see Rook this far? I mean, how did they get? How did, how does it all come about? Similar to Shakhtar, who qualified because Shakhtar made the uh, Champions League knock uh, group stage. Rook Lviv qualified, but through the uh, non non Champions League path. So they've been playing matches throughout the season already. Against uh, they played against a Polish team, then they played against Galatasaray, beat them. Got into Milan in the last round a few weeks ago, beat them on penalties. And now they've got the other side of Milan to face uh, this time round. Yeah, definitely. Will be. I mean, it's, it's just nice to see another club you know, doing so well and bringing a bit of success into the Ukrainian league uh, at this time in particular. Well, I mean, we've spoken there domestically and looking at the... the the clubs in Europe. Now it's probably some time to shine a lot on the national team because we have a, a rather big fixture coming up in just oh, around three weeks' time now, uh, more or less, if I'm right. Is it three weeks or four weeks? I'm looking, I know, with the England game, where are we with the national team manager? Have, has the caretaker been announced now, Andrew? No, he hasn't, actually. Um, he's not been officially announced at all, but the general consensus pretty much sort of de facto confirmed is that Ruslan Rutain, the current Ukraine under 21 manager and the current Alexandria manager will take on a third job at the same time and become Ukraine national team 
caretaker manager of the seniors with the fact that uh, Uaf has already put in visa applications for him and his backroom team for them to take charge of the game in March and possibly a friendly of some kind a few days beforehand, which hasn't been confirmed either. We've been hearing those rumours about Brentford in the last episode. Now it seems it's going to be more of a training ground friendly kind of bibs game uh, that might not even be accessible to sort of anyone to see. Uh, fingers crossed by the time we get into March, which is by the time I was listening to this, literally a couple or few days away, we're going to be a bit more clearer about something. There might be some sort of announcement because as far as everyone's concerned, Rebrov is not leaving Align until at least the end of the season because of, you know, contractual agreements, everything else that we've been talking about over the past few years um, with regards to UAF's priorities in terms of who they want, which is Rebrov. They wanted him prior to Petrikov, couldn't get him because he just signed for Alain. Now the same thing's happening again. And lots of people are, I guess, concerned about the fact that this England game is quite a big one. It's a way, uh, you know, you could get, a, if you get a positive result out of that, it starts you well for the rest of the campaign. And then Rebrov coming in, not halfway through, but part of the way through, might that throw everything off? How's that going to work exactly? Who knows? On top of that, there's the other issue. Ruslan Rotan is also preparing for the under-21 Euros this summer, which is a big tournament. Oaf obviously have a big focus on that too, because if you finish in the top three or four, you get to represent the country at the Olympics, which Ukraine has never done. Uh, what Ukraine's realistic chances of making the top three at the Euros is, I guess, a bit, um, bit of a tough one to really confirm at the moment, though, because there are a load of top teams and we know that they've not been the most consistent under Rotain despite qualifying. And on top of that, they've got two quite good friendlies to prepare for this in March. So they're meant to be playing against Denmark under-21s and Italy under-21s. However, that Denmark game, because Ruslan Rotain is expected to be the caretaker manager during the month, he won't be able to oversee that game. So it's going to be some different coaches taking over that one. And then there's the potential that he might be able to take over the Italy game because it's the day after Ukraine-England. So he might be able to fly into Italy early morning and take charge of the friendly. But whether this is <laughs> going to be of any positive signs or whether this is going to give any sort of good um, omens or I don't know literally it just seems a bit of a mess and it seems a bit of um, it's as if there's no other options for for the current for the current scenario when I'm sure that there possibly could be anyone other than Rakan who's already got so much on his plate as it is Hujamov Rustam Hujamov um the former Mariupol goalkeeper, of course, the former Polisa, I think, goalkeeping coach most recently. He has apparently said that he will be part of uh, uh, Serhira Abrov's coaching team. He's already been applied for a visa to be the goalkeeping coach during March. And then I think he might stay on too. On top of that, 
Zabarni is apparently injured until April. Yerbolenko has pulled his quad or, or something like that for Alain, and he might be out for a number of weeks, three minimum, apparently, according to um, uh, Dmitro Babaluk, who's a Ukrainian sort of sports doctor. And yeah, it seems like a perfect storm for oh well, we've lo- this we can write this first match day off and then deal with everything else going forward. But it just seems like a total missed opportunity, especially playing against England uh, and the potential for you know maybe having organised a, a match against someone like Brentford, which would have given a bit more exposure for. Ukraine's national team with everything that's going on recently to put a good performance in as well. And yeah, it seems like Rotan probably won't be doing too much coaching and it's just going to be literally the players on the pitch doing the talking. And if we go on recent form for some players, such as Mudrik, not too good. Others might have to play a bigger part in it with, uh, you know, the leaders in the team, such as Zinchenko, Malinovsky, and elsewhere. Right. I've got, I've got to ask you this question. I'm, I'm listening to Andrew there and I'm thinking, is it like missed opportunity or just an amalgamation of stupid decisions? And is there a history of stupid decisions there that we can sort of look back on? The first managerial decision after Shachenko was actually a an emergency one. Remember, Petrako did his job. We all respect the man. And we wish him all good, all the best in Armenia. And this, the rumor has it, he's already being um, on his player's side. You know, he's getting along because this man knows a lot of stories and he knows how to handle a crowd. But the thing about his uh, start uh, of the career in national team was actually an emergency one, just like Rotan right now. So uh, the president of federation. Um, or association, whatever. He needed someone to be the scapegoat. I would go as, as far as saying that uh, because um, it's just it's just it's just done because you need to sign a rebro, but you fail every time, and you just don't care. You know, there is no particular chain of command or. Um, the strategy, how to handle it. I mean, they are going to have a friendly against Brentford. Who's going to organize it? Yarmouluk? I mean, that's my only question in this whole situation, you know. I mean, playing bibs with anybody who would like to attend, great. But writing off a match against England just because we can afford it, just because we have a, a talent who is apparently a, one of the best friends with president of the association who can handle three jobs at once, this is just absurd and nonsense. And um, I was really um, curious about watching Rotan at uh, Alexandria. But now we can just try this team off. Because in his interview, he said, we are applying a new style of football. It takes time to learn. Of course, it takes time to learn if you're too busy handling three jobs at once. So forget about Alexandria. I mean, they were one of the best teams, one of the best looking teams so far. They were going fifth in the league. They one of the few teams which deserve their spot, but now it's all gone. You're saying there's Zabani out and Yarmolenko out, Konoplyanka getting called back and the like. I, when you look at the list, there's enough talent in the Ukrainian national team squad 
to be, still be able to put out a very strong team against England. We could even bring back Krufsop from into Miami, given given the way he's kicked off over there. Absolutely. We'll be touching on that shortly. But I think, first of all, interesting to note that Conor Planka is meant to be included in the extended as been a list. And obviously this has been met with very different sides of different reactions across Ukrainian media, across Ukrainian football in general, and across fans saying, what's this guy done over the past few years, even at Krakowia, um, to really merit a place in the team? The day that it was sort of rumoured and came out that he was included and he was going to be getting a visa for the UK, he got an assist. But that's sort of like his only assist in like <laughs> for a number of months and everything else that entails with that. The the main thing is I think that him and Rotani obviously go back uh, a fair bit from their Dnipro days and Koroplanka never really had a proper Zbirna send-off. So this could be his finale, his final swan song. Some people were saying he's going to be good in the dressing room. He helps out with sort of morale. He's got a lot of experience. He should be good from that respect. Maybe he might be, especially if the likes of Yermolenko might be injured. Maybe you need a bit of that experience in there. But I feel that there is enough of that anyway. You've got the likes of Zinchenko, who looks to be a real leader, a real character in the side. Um, a number of other talents in the team too. So... It's it's strange. We'll have to wait and see who ends up getting included in the extended squad, which is apparently also including like the likes of Bialski, who some people said was missing fairly uh, from some of Petrikov's squads. Maybe he could have made a difference against the likes of Wales last year. And also Svapok, who's been playing relatively okay for Dnipro 1 recently uh, as a centre-back, especially with the current issues that Ukraine have there with obviously Zabani being possibly out for, for that fixture. And obviously let's move on to the, I guess, positive news of Sidhi Krivtsov. We were talking about great, great that he got the move over there. He wasn't really playing for Shakhtar recently, albeit ironically, they probably need him right now. If you look at all the suspensions that they've got to their back line for the match against Feyenoord, where Bondar, Konoplya and Mihailichenko all out. They could do with a experienced right-sided <laughs> right-sided centre-back. And, um, well, I, it looks like maybe the likes of Rakitsky or someone like that is going to have to be replacing him in, in that middle there, or Kozik or Farina or whoever. However, obviously the MLS kicked off this past weekend. Uh, I decided to watch it using the free trial, the free Apple TV trial, um, where all the games are on, uh, whenever whenever the kickoff is, you can watch them in the app. All seems quite good. There's a weird MLS 360 show where you're watching for half of it, the pundits with their backs towards the camera, watching the games on big screens. I'm sure that that's probably going to get resolved soon because that was quite terrible television to watch. But the actual Inter-Miami game, uh, they Klivtsov looked great. He looks, you know, very solid, very distinguished, assured as he would be, you know, 31-year-old centre-back, 
loads of experience in the Champions League playing against playing against forwards or the likes that probably aren't to the quality of the players that he's played against uh, in the past, especially in recent history anyway, where, when he was playing really well for Zbigniew, et cetera. He managed to get a goal on his debut, <laughs> surprisingly. I think everyone was in shock um, off, off his groin and got a clean sheet and even got the star man voted by fans. So... All looks good. Whether he is in contention for uh, a national team call-up, recall, whatever you call it, is another question. Fingers crossed we find out soon. But I wouldn't pass him by, personally, because I think he's still very much a good option to have off off the bench, especially if any injuries or, or the lights come through. And at the moment, I would even trust him a bit more than Bondad, who, for me, there's... There seems to be a few questions at the moment. I feel he's still a bit inexperienced. The confidence isn't fully there. I agree completely with you there about Bondar as well. Um, I watched an interview the other day by, um, well, it's it's done by uh, the footballer, uh, author, Mitropov Rozniuk. Uh, he took the president of Veres, Ivan Nadin, to sit in for an interview, asking questions to the other president of the uh, football club, Police Sergei the sworn enemies of Obolon Kiev in the Persia Liga. <laughs> Who, the police system apparently are rumored to be top four budget in UPL next season. So you should expect them being the second uh, Zoria, I would say. Uh, like the fourth strength, the fourth power in the league. The owner of police is top 15 richest man in Ukraine, Butkevich. He is a, um, I would go so far as calling him a former oligarch. Uh, let's put it that way. Uh, he owns the chain of supermarkets in Ukraine, and he went to Miami to see how Beckham done it. And so, well, there we go. The 90s businessman going to the 80s cult city for inspiration for a football club, for base infrastructure and stadium, which he could be, uh, which he could apply to um, his side. Um, that refers to... That actually reminds me of what you said in the beginning, Adam, about the golden times of Ukrainian football. I would not like them to come back that way because, you know, when there is one guy who is quite old, let's say, who is who has something behind his back, um, it's not the model we're looking for. It's not about the youth. It's not about the kids. It's not about the community. It's about personal ambition. It's not even about Inter Miami because my Inter Miami has something else than Beckham. He just bought the well. He he didn't buy the club, right? He created the club, but mm-hmm. he's not the only one. Uh, there's there's a city. There is. I'm pretty sure there's a, there's an academy for Inter Miami. So and this guy doesn't look for much. He's not. He's. It's not in Europe, right? You're not going to compete in Champions League or whatever. It. What can you fight for in MLS? I mean. Concacaf Cup or I don't know. It's not even Copa Libertadores out there. I mean, it's hard to say, but it's it's healthy position to be in. Whereas in Ukrainian football, if you take the club and you just uh, lump all the money into it, you expect to live through 2014 again. Fair enough. Looking elsewhere, though, on slightly more positive things, really looks like uh, Mr. Sagankov. Has had the shackles taken off him by leaving Dinamo um, last. Or it is still last month. It was still in February, of course. I'm surprised, but I mean, 
Do we have do we ask questions about his attitude and given how poorly he played in the UPL over the last two seasons? Was it something to do with the toxic nature of the club, Andrew? Ah, uh, a bit of a mix, because I think what we have to understand is that he was still he still was one of the best players in that Dynamo team, especially in the Ukrainian Premier League. Maybe in Europe there wasn't much on offer from him. He looked okay in, in obviously, games for Zbirna on occasion, but it just seemed that the passion and the real drive to help the team succeed, alongside, obviously, the poor form and, you could say, the just general stagnation of the entire club, um, led to, obviously, him wanting to leave, uh, him him getting that move to Girona. And, look, he's now... Had two starts for the club. He's got two assists and a goal out of those two starts. Had a few nice cameos off the bench as well where he looked okay. And, you know, the the Girona looked to be playing quite well. They they won 3-2 this weekend against Athletic Bilbao, which obviously quite a good scalp for a team of Girona stature. They're currently 10th in the league, just four points off sixth. Um, which is a European spot. So it, it it looks to be going quite well. All we need to ensure, I guess, is that Sankov maintains his fitness because we know that he's very injury prone. He has got those problems. Or maybe we might see the fact that he wasn't injury prone at all and he just wanted to play a bit less for Dynamo in recent <laughs> year in recent years and was trying to, you know, conserve energy from from that perspective, but but who knows from that respect? That's just all conspiracy and um, guesswork. But I think one thing that none of us really expected when we've been talking over the past few episodes about all the transfer activity that's happened, especially in January, is that Hankov would be hitting the ground running faster than Mudrik. And sadly, I guess. Not just the player, but I think the environment around both both of them has been probably the key factor in, in what has affected both of their starts in their respective clubs. We've seen Mudrik, who at time of recording is on 006, um, as the all the football Twitter meme pages are are saying, he's just one away from 007. Uh, zero goals, zero assists, seven games. Um, so, which was last matched by obviously Jaden Sancho um, for a sort for a similar stature kind of transfer. You have to look into it. The things that Mudrik has been sort of faced with over the past few weeks against Southampton, he came on final half an hour. There was loads of fake stats going around where he apparently lost tw- the ball twenty times in that. It, out of 20 or something, which was a load of rubbish. It was probably about half of that. The team itself has got no structure, uh, no real number nine. They're playing Havertz or when Aubameyang comes on, he does next to nothing. It's just sort of a complete mess going on against Spurs as well. He got about 15 minutes to do something. And similarly there, he didn't do too much either. Uh, he looked lively, though. He looked like he had a lot of energy. He was trying to go for crosses. He was trying to 
trying to do something, but there's only so much one person can do when you're two nil down and the rest of the team is very much uh, in sort of a, a non-congealed status, looks to be sort of hapless. You've got players like Mason Mount in the team who obviously are currently not very happy with their own position at the club because they're not being given the the new contract that, that they are after. Um, it just looks like a complete mess. And for the time being anyway, it seems like Graham Potter is going to be staying there. I guess it's just how long will these owners put up with it, especially seeing as the next few weeks are pretty key for the remainder of the season. I, I think that we can all agree on that Chelsea are probably not going to be doing anything this campaign, but maybe if they had the opportunity to switch managers for someone who's probably a bit more of a manager than a coach, you know, you can just put a bit of a structure into everything rather than sort of like nurturing and patting people on the head, then, then something it might work out a bit better. But right now, it looks like they could be out of Europe by next week if they don't beat Borussia Dortmund, who they're already 1-0 down to. And then they've got Leeds on the weekend too, which I think is a sort of a must-win game for both to really try and get themselves out of this rut and whilst Leeds obviously fighting relegation. So it's all going to be a bit of a tough one. But yeah. Credit to Tankov for, for playing well. And Mudrik, I think time will tell. Like we said, adaptation is going to take a while and we probably won't see the best of him until at least the start of next season. I agree completely with your last statement there. You know, um, remember when Mikolenko went, went across and we said, give him six months. One thing I think we all sort of agreed on unanimously last month is Mudrick's not an £80 million player. It was uh, Shakhtar's business now that got that money for him. Uh, £30, £40 million, my estimate, potentially lower. And take Zabani, for example, he's gone across to Bournemouth, wasn't thrown in, picked up an injury, not likely to be seen now for a few months. No one's questioning it. And it's purely the price tag that comes with with this and the fact Felix has come across and sort of hit the ground running there as well has probably got a few more question marks about him. Speaking to people in England, general consensus from the people I talk to is it's clear he's got talent. It's clear he's got the ability to perform in the Premier League. It's also clear he's in a team that's in a dire mess. And... That's where I I think from my own standpoint, I think when he went to Chelsea, I wasn't aware what a mess Chelsea is in. And I've said privately, I'll say publicly now, if Chelsea get pulled into a relegation battle, it wouldn't surprise me because there's one thing you need in football, it's the ability to score a goal. And Chelsea don't look like they've got the ability to score a goal at the moment. Uh, and the transfer window is shut for the English Premier League at, at this time. So, uh, yeah, I think it's very tough. One thing I would say as well, though, is that, you know, we've we've watched Mudrick for a number of years. And the stick that they used to beat him with in Ukraine was the zero goals. You know, he spend that half season at Desna 
no goals. The half season Arsenal keep no no goals, and he stuck at it. As you were talking earlier, Andrew about Zinchenko, and was it Zinchenko had been in England for two years when he was twenty one? Wasn't he called in by Guardiola and told to go find another club? You know, and it takes time. And now we're looking at Zinchenko over the last 12 months has turned into probably the key player for the Ukrainian national team and a real leader and probably the key player in Arsenal's transformation this year in England as well. So, you know, for us listening, you know, talking about this and those at home listening to it from a Ukrainian lens, it's, I would say to people, is just give him time, don't write him off. You know, he's got talent and he needs people behind him. Very interesting thing for me was the fact he's turned off his uh, messages on Instagram, I read, over the last couple of weeks, which would hint that he's starting to get a lot of uh, abuse. Where he's certainly been instructed to not open himself up to the, the personal attacks that we can see in social media land this year, uh, over the last few years. Anyway, on to happier things. PFL Winter Cup. Now, I know, Ray, you've been enjoying this one, haven't you, this year? What's been going on? I accidentally stumbled upon it when I've been uh, following the news about Levy Barry uh, FC coming back to life, presenting their arena. Uh, they are advancing towards um, starting the next season, I believe, in, uh, I hope, uh, Druha Liga. But now they're playing a winter a PFL Winter Cup as um, an alternative to the Winter Cup hosted by aforementioned uh, Polisa, uh, which was won by Vorska Poltava. Uh, the uh, Winter Cup of PFL uh, includes uh, two Nivas from Vinica and Buzova, Liva Beret FC, uh, Chaika from Kiev Oblast, Druzhba Mirivka, which is from Kiev Oblast as well, but I never heard of, of that team before, which is even more exciting. Uh, they have a very picturesque arena between the railway and the highway, which is always a nice sight to see. Uh, FC Oko, which is um, powered by the um, gas station company, in Ukraine and Kremlin Kranchuk, who are now zero points after four games played. Um, the fun thing uh, about that cup is that Liv Beret is now ahead with 12 points, as you could probably tell, they've won all four games. Niva Vinitsa, Niva Buzova, and Chaika all have six points. And I don't know anything about anything more, anything else about that because I don't know how the format pans out. Who wins the cup? Is it the first team? Is, are, are they going to be like, you know, yeah, so there's plenty to see about that. And for that, you need to follow their Instagram pages, which is quite a good approach. All of the matches are being broadcasted on YouTube channels. I was really upset when I missed two of the games, which I wanted to see live on YouTube. And I've missed them because I overslept because of the time zones. But uh, for people who are available or more, more available to uh, more closer to Ukrainian time zone, I would really suggest watching some of those as opposed to uh, updating the news on Tribuna website or, I don't know, looking through football.ua website because are the, these, the biggest media uh, about football in Ukraine these days, they only cover the, um, the top, you know, the um, creme de la creme. And even though it's a complete mess, as we've been discussing for a whole hour now, 
this is where it all makes sense. And somehow it's it it might not last long. We know that's like all these small clubs, they are powered by initiative and enth- enthusiasm, but what the hell? Isn't that what we need these days? Mm-hmm. Yep. As you mentioned earlier, the new the new Ukrainian club, you know, would you say Livy Beret is one of the you know, sort of standard bearers of what the new Ukrainian club should be like. Absolutely. Uh, as opposed to, well, let's do it this way. Let's be fair, right? We have the good part, the, not the good part, but one part and the second part, right? So we have Liva Berek as the representative of one system and FC Police as the representative of others. Mm. Of the golden times of UPL, as you mentioned them, but I don't, I don't really agree with you. I- well, that's it for tonight, everyone. But make sure you're uh, following our schedule over the next week because coming out early next week is our preview for the rest of the season. We're going to be taking a deep dive into all the clubs, what they've been up to over the last few months, new signings, and probably putting our heads on the chopping block and making a few predictions on what we think is going to happen during the remainder of the 2022-2023 Ukrainian season. Enjoyed the first match day of the UPL, everyone. And until next time, take care, stay safe, and goodbye for now. Bye-bye.